Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, August 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. New York Representative Chris Collins arrested for insider trading, frantically calling his son and telling him, sell, sell, for God's sake, sell. After a drug trial in a pharma company he was invested in went south. Although it was an Australian pharma company, so maybe it started off south. Sometimes insider trading cases are hard to prove. This one seems like Collins was unsophisticated and brazen and did nothing to cover his tracks. Now that's in contrast to the opacity that characterized his personal public disclosures. Oh, that seems like an oxymoron. Now that's that's in contrast to the opacity that characterized his past public disclosures. A few years ago, he spoke before local constituents. He serves a constituency near Buffalo. And at issue was a roiling issue in his a few of his races. Why doesn't he show how he makes his money? Why doesn't he disclose his taxes beyond what the uh, Federal Elections Commission requires him to do? And here was how he explained it then. My corporations are listed line by line with the income or loss of each company. I would never give that information to my competitors. That would jeopardize jobs in Western New York. You don't sit there. No company goes to their competitors and says, let me show you how much money I'm making or not making. You just don't do that kind of thing. He will not disclose to the public his sources of income because it would be competitively disadvantageous. This was, by the way, exactly the line of reasoning that Chris Collins laid on me when I talked to him before one of the presidential debates when I asked him, don't you think Donald Trump should disclose and open up his taxes? No, it would be bad for Donald Trump's business, he said. Now, failure to be open with the public, it is different from insider trading, but it is also of a piece in this one regard. It proves that the personal fortunes of the representative are more important than the public interest. In fact, it might be disadvantageous for the business of a public official, were that public official, to inform the public sufficiently about his business. But that's what you do. Just like it might not be the best investment strategy for someone who runs for office or runs for the presidency to put his holdings in a blind trust. Maybe that person would say, oh, I'm better actively managing the money. But it doesn't matter because we're talking about the public interest. This is what you do when you're a public official or you don't do, as is the case of Collins and Donald Trump. Now, I think if Donald Trump disclosed his taxes, it would represent a lot more than his business competitors getting an advantage. I think it just might hold keys to a lot of areas that Robert Mueller would be interested in. But I want to make an ancillary point about this. Trump seemingly fears the release of his taxes, and that's why his taxes haven't been released. Now, realize that there are people within the government who know what the taxes say. There are probably, I don't know, tens or dozens of people who've seen these taxes, who've gone through them, who know their exact content. And Donald Trump is constantly degrading and denigrating the role of bureaucrats, or worse, he paints a picture of government officials who swore an oath and yet somehow are out to get him, are motivated by political or personal animus against him. He lodges this charge against the FBI. But there, 
in the IRS, we have government officials who have been trusted with a responsibility and they know what their responsibility is. They act ethically and they keep to their oath and they don't have to. If they didn't, they'd probably be called heroes by more people than call Edward Snowden a hero. But still, they don't break their oath. They know what the professional code is. At least someone does. On the show today, I spiel about some weird words in the New York Times. But first, with LeBron James, the aforementioned President Trump squabbling. And by squabbling, what I really mean is the President of the United States is embarrassing himself and the power forward of the Los Angeles Lakers is acting with dignity. But let's now take the time to think about, to consider the place of the black athlete, the place that he has held in the fields of politics and of social change and of activism, because there is a legacy there. There is, in fact, in the words of Howard Bryant's new book, The Heritage. I'm going to start by laying a football stat on you, but you see, you will see where I'm going with this. Football Outsiders did a study a few years back. 1,444 quarterbacks have thrown at least 200 passes in a season when they were 29 years old. Of those 1,444, guess how many were invited to play once they turned 30? The answer is every single one of them, with the exception of Colin Kaepernick. My guest, Howard Bryant, has written a book which is about Kaepernick, but so many other things. Just wanted to lay that out there because I do think people think that Ka- Kaepernick was good, but was he really good enough to get invited to play again? Oh, yes. The name of Howard Bryant's book is The Heritage, Black Athletes, a Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Hello, Howard. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Mike. So... I read and I've always been fascinated with Paul Robeson and this Colin Kaepernick story made me think of Robeson because I think the case can be made and I'd like to hear who you think that one of those two guys sacrificed the most from their stands. Their stands, Ali's stand cost him, but look at what he became. And Jackie Robinson's stand cost him, but after he was allowed to play, he went through turmoil and yet was still celebrated. Kaepernick stuck by his guns and it cost him his athletic career and Robeson stuck by his guns. This was after he was an athlete and pretty much ruined him. Who do you, do you think that those two were the ones who've paid the biggest cost? Uh, I don't know about the biggest cost. I, I know that they're up there in terms of the biggest cost. Obviously I would take Robeson over Kaepernick in terms of who suffered more simply because the raw dollars, Colin Kaepernick probably has 10, $20 million in the bank if he spent it or saved it correctly. And I think there was a thing where they said, oh, we had 130 million guaranteed contract, but we know about NFL guaranteed contracts. And he wound up with maybe 20 million. So you're right. He can have exactly. So, and Paul Robeson ended up with 6,000 a year in terms of the equivalent. So Paul Robeson was essentially sent not directly into poverty, but he was he was sent into a place where his livelihood was essentially taken away with no cushion. And if people don't know, at that point, his livelihood was as a performer. Well, exactly, as yeah, a singer, yeah. sure, yeah. And, a, and, and in the theater. And I think where they took his livelihood away most was by taking his passport because he made most of his money overseas. It wasn't as though he was making a lot of appearances in the United States, but by revoking his passport, which is the reason why he had appeared in front of the House and American Activities Committee in the first place back in both 1946 and 1949, that was the reason why they had pretty much wiped him out. Was there the fiction at the time, as with uh, Kaepernick, that 
business wasn't blackballing him. Did they did they say, oh, no, 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 not at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, they couldn't because because the Robeson after Robeson's second year, the NFL imposed segregation. So they were blackballing everybody who was black. So what's really interesting about Robeson is that not only did he was he not able to continue a football career because of segregation, but then was blackballed by the U.S. government following the segregation in the NFL. And I think that's what's sort of interesting when I think about the the heritage of these athletes. One of the reasons why I did the book in the first place was this notion that the political black athlete was somehow created after Trayvon Martin was killed. And it's like, well, hang on a second. This goes back about 100 years. Yeah. And that is the book. And the book is called The Heritage. And it goes back to people, very much people like Paul Robeson. But this is just a function of how old I am. I always thought that black activism, although it was prized maybe in the circles that I run in and and people would say, why can't we have athletes like Muhammad Ali or why can't we, you know, have athletes like the guys on the podium in Mexico City? Why can't we have athletes and they'd name activist athletes? And I would always say, again, I was starting to pay attention to sports in the 70s through the 80s, early 90s. Like, that seems more to be the exception to me. And in my experience, the rule was Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan and and the very and non-political OJ. athlete. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that is, how did this become toxic? That's, you know, and I think we're, you know, we're of the same generation. How did this become toxic? When did this, how did you go from Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Kurt Flood, Jackie Robinson passing away in 72 to not seeing this again in any large measure from any great player until LeBron James. Yeah. I mean, that's a generation. That's 40 years. So there's no question that the depending on your generation, depending on what years are your years, it's either common or it's completely uncommon. Why is it that activism is the heritage? Yes, there are strains. There are definitely strains of both of this. But how could you be sure as you were writing the book that you would see the the many instances of being non-political and say that is the exception versus that is the rule? Well, I don't know if there is a separation. I think that and you can't necessarily tell the difference because one of the questions that I was asking myself as I got to the end of the book was, do you really get to join the pantheon of Paul Robeson and Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson by putting on a T-shirt? Mm-hmm. Is Does that get you into that club? I don't think that it does, because let's face it, as much as we talk about the militarism post 9-11 of sports, activism can be pretty fashionable, too. How much of a risk are you really taking when you've got your big sneaker contract behind you? You've got Nike behind you doing cool Equality ads. Are you really risking anything? Actually, you're not risking anything. You're branding. There's a difference between activism and branding. And I think that's one of the things that you really do have to watch out for now. There is a shift. I don't know if it's a Malcolm X MLK shift or split between a guy like Eric Reed and a guy like Malcolm Jenkins. But there's a personality split between those two. Yeah. Those two dishes. But but Reed thinks that all Jenkins did was kind of give the owners cover to say, oh, we're doing something. We're giving you no. um, a, a crumb from uh, the billion dollar industry. No. Yes, but no. Mm-hmm. The reason why Eric Reed and Malcolm Jenkins don't get along is because Eric Reed believed wholeheartedly that Malcolm Jenkins undermined the protest, that Malcolm Jenkins went to the owners and instead of supporting the protest and supporting the players, that he was brokering an end to the protest. When you're looking at what's taking place today, I do believe that all the NFL players that did this, I think they should be ashamed of themselves. I think that the white players should be ashamed of themselves because I think that what's really taking place here, this is a labor battle. 
They're getting punched in the face on labor. Yeah. And they're allowing themselves to get punched in the face on labor. They're allowing themselves to be penalized for something that wasn't collectively bargained. Doesn't matter what the thing is. They would have stood up and said, you can't do that about performance enhancing drugs. They would have taken more of a stance (laughs) to allow us to do performance enhancing drugs than they've taken to allow us to take a knee. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that what you're starting to see, at least to me when I watch all this, is I see the disconnect of logic. I just see all of it collapsing. I'm extremely disappointed when I look at someone like Malcolm Jenkins and Charles Barkley uh, and the McCourty brothers and and now Dak Prescott listening to these guys talk about how, oh, well, you can't just take any. Where on earth did they take the position? Did they learn that making a gesture was somehow separate from action? Where did that come from? If I'm not mistaken, the Montgomery bus boycott was action. It was a gesture. Yeah. They chose not to ride the bus. Yeah. For a year. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty significant protest. And the fact that these players are doing this says, I mean, it's, it is a complete undermining of not just Kaepernick, but of history. And it's not, and I think what has bothered me most when I've read this is, is listening to a lot of the writers and the media write about this as though it's simply just a matter of opinion that Dak Prescott has a right to his opinion. No, Dak Prescott is wrong. Okay, and what Dak Prescott did was he said, I'm not going to take, he essentially sided with his boss, Jerry Jones. He did, but he also yeah. said that you can't just take a knee. He's taken mm-hmm. this, he's, he's taken that, that line of thinking as well, that somehow n- taking a knee does not qualify as action. Yeah. My question to the people like Dak Prescott is, what have you ever done? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to criticize this as, as inaction, where's your action in the first place? What do you think a white player in the NFL should do? To Something. Hand on the shoulder? <laughs> what about kneeling? Is kneeling appropriation? Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's appropriation. I think kneeling is, I think they don't want that heat. So what should the white player do? Well, the white player has to recognize too that they are citizens. And if this means anything to them, then they need to be a part of it. However, it doesn't mean a whole lot to them because there's something else that means more to them, and that is the fidelity to how things are. They benefit more from the status quo. They don't believe this is their issue. They've never believed it was their issue, and I don't expect to see that changing anytime soon. It's one of the reasons why you don't have a lot of change because you we treat these moments as if they belong to other people. Oh, that's a black issue. Oh, that's a women's issue. Oh, that's a, you know, it's a poor people's issue or whatever. But it's not being treated as something that belongs to all of us. And that's one of the reasons why you don't see them do anything. What do you make of Kaepernick's media strategy, if it's a strategy, just general media silence, though? He does commit a lot of notable deeds. I think he doesn't want to be defined anymore. And, and I had said to him, if you don't speak for yourself, then all the shaping, they get to do the shaping. And his attitude was, well, it's a lose-lose anyway, that he mm-hmm. just didn't want to say anything and he was just going to let it fall. Maybe he thought that it was a, an example of him getting a job, that this was going to affect him getting a job and that then you can do your talking once you're employed or, or whatever, whatever that strategy was. But I never liked the fact that that he let his opposition, he let the people who were really trying to destroy him he let them speak for him. Now, there's also a commentary to be done that he was right in some areas, which is that media can't be trusted either, that the people that were doing the talking didn't get it right either. And he was just, I'm just not going to play. I'm not going to engage either way. And there's a lot of validity to that when you look at how we've covered this story. We've covered it very poorly. Your job is to be a some, somewhat of a public intellectual, make a case in the public sphere tell Kaepernick that's what you should be doing, but 
You know, that's not his orientation. Well, I don't think it's not It's not his orientation, and he's not the one who should be getting that message anyway. The people who should be getting the message are the ones who are shaping the story around the American flag because it makes them comfortable. To me, the biggest story isn't Kaepernick. It's the fact that we all know what this is about, yet how many stories have we done on grieving black mothers? Mm-hmm. How many stories have we done on families who have been destroyed by this? How many times have we – how many times do you go to a ball game and you see some family whose child was killed by police being trotted out there? You don't. That's the story. That's actually why they're kneeling. And yet you never see that at all. What you see is us finding some white guy, whether it's Boomer Esiason or Tony La Russa or John Tortorella talking about the flag and heroes and all this other bullshit. And so because of that, if I'm Colin Kaepernick, I might say, well, there's no point talking because they're not hearing me anyway. So that to me is the real issue. I think that when you know, if you had had an interview with Philando Castile's family before a, a baseball game or before a football game, maybe it's a different message. Yeah. Okay. So how do you think history will remember a guy like Kaepernick? And I only ask because Jackie Robinson had his number retired by every major league baseball team and Muhammad Ali went from once the most toxic celebrity athlete to a secular saint. We seem to want to tell a story to ourselves that puts ourselves on the right side of history. Will Kaepernick be remembered? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And the reason is because there's a difference. Number one, Jackie was right. Mm -hmm. That's how could you argue with what Jackie Robinson did? He was right. The reason why Ali was able to pivot from sinner to saint in the eyes of the white American public was because he won. Vietnam was discredited as as a war. And also, he won his title back. He got right. back and he was on top again. He won. And Kaepernick never got that second act. He never came back and signed a one-year contract and won the Super Bowl or did anything like that. And the country hasn't reconciled with these killings by police. And there hasn't been any real justice there. So there hasn't yet been that retrospective that you look back and go, oh, we did these people wrong. And by definition, we did Colin Kaepernick wrong. And therefore, he needs to be rehabilitated. None of that has happened yet. I know we compress time, uh, but it's only been a couple of years. So maybe in five, six, 10, 20, I don't know. But as of right now, I don't see it for two reasons. One, he never got a second act on the field. And two, this country still believes there's nothing to talk about. Howard Bryant is the author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Howard, thanks so much for stopping by. No, my pleasure. Thank you. And now the spiel. I am enjoying the diplomatic row between Turkey and the U.S. Oh, I do feel terrible for Andrew Brunson, the American preacher, who is detained in Turkey over what seems to be trumped-up charges. He's working with the hated, exiled preacher Fatula Gulan. He lives in Pennsylvania, by the way, does Gulan, and Brunson is being detained. I hope they free Brunson. But this is why I like it. Because as the Trump administration has been in power, very few diplomatic engagements have progressed down the path that I would deem normal, the path that is usual in my life, which is this. A foreign strongman adversary acts like an idiot. He brays, he engages in histrionics for his domestic consumption. And then the U.S. will calmly and methodically exert its far superior leverage to get our way, or at least to bend the adversary to our will as best we can. Makes sense. But lately, what happens is we get a salvo of nonsense from a foreign strongman, and our strongman feels compelled to outstupid that guy. 
I've got a bigger button. Or once a fairly predictable response is issued regarding the withdrawal of the weapons pack with Iran, our president will say, suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. But with Turkey, it's that the Turks have been wrong and we have been right. The United States has been calm and the Turks just spin around and around like, uh, not going to say dervish, not going to say dervish, a dotard. Now, there's this social media campaign, hashtag, here we go, try to say it. I I, I consulted uh, a pronunciation app. There's a social media campaign, hashtag, imperialisme kale olmeliage, which means hashtag won't be slave to imperialism. Now, it does not surprise me that many Turks would take this tack. The tack of the Turks is going to be a good tactic because they're very nationalistic of every country I've ever been to. It's the only one that could give the United States a run for its money in display of the national flag. So Turks love Turkey and they're against imperialism and they have a hashtag campaign. And here comes the New York Times because the New York Times quotes a just random Turkish guy, Erkan Babar. And this is what the Times translates his quote or his uh, Twitter post is saying. I have my own company and dollar affects almost our entire business, but we are not born as bosses from our mothers and it is not the dollar that made us the boss. We will close down our company if necessary and paint shoes, sell bagels, thank God, but never make turkey bait for you. A couple things jump out. Paint shoes? What is this, the Netherlands or Turkey? We talking clogs here and bagels? Bagels? So I went, I found the original tweet. It was in Turkish. I put it through a translation machine. Here's what I found out. Paint shoes, probably better translated as polish shoes. I have a business, but I will become a boot black or a shoeshine boy before I succumb to imperialism. And bagels? Well, that's simit. I think I'm saying it right. And I've seen them on the streets of Turkey. They're delicious. It's a round bread. It does have a hole, but not a bagel. It's more like a pretzel filled with sesame. And I got to say, it seems to be an indignity Almost a uh, imperial, if not imperious, indignity visited upon a Turk who is declaring Turkish pride and independence when an American news outlet will take his words and when he talks about his staff of life, twist it into a delicacy that we and not he is familiar with. So slight demerit to the New York Times for that. At the same time, Big ups to the New York Times, because today, for the first time ever, the New York Times included in its pages a new word, not a word you haven't heard, but a word the New York Times has never printed in its pages before, and that word was unfreaking believable. One word, unfreaking believable. Here is the context to why the New York Times printed unfreaking believable. Amelia and Victor Canavs, they're now U.S. citizens. This is Melania's parents. These immigrants, they got the job done. The job being having a close personal connection to the president of the United States. Also, let's note they're from Slovenia, which has a very small Muslim population for all you demographers in the audience or on the courts. I will read from some of the New York Times coverage. Melania Trump's parents were briskly sworn in as citizens of the United States in New York on Thursday. Since initial reports emerged in February that the Knavs have obtained permanent residency in the United States, there has been a lack of clarity about when or how the couple received green cards. Under immigration statutes, the Knavs would have needed to have their green cards for at least five years, and then once applying the average time to process an application is 11 to 21 months. So at the very, very least, the Knavs seem to have gone twice as fast as anyone else 
could have gone in becoming citizens. And who knows if they even fulfilled their five-year requirement for green cards. Also, it should be noted that Melania's parents became citizens based on the fact that their daughter is a citizen. There was someone here in America who they were connected to or chained to chain migration. This process is cruelly and somewhat inaccurately called chain migration. I don't like to call it that, but you know who does? The Kanav's son-in-law. And this is how the New York Times ended its report. News of the ceremony prompted an immediate response on Twitter with tweets ranging from welcome to unfreaking believable It stuck the landing on the report headlined, Melania Trump's parents become U.S. citizens using chain migration Trump hates. Unfreaking believable And thus, the New York Times christened a new word on its pages as our country welcomes two of its newest citizens benefiting from a system that the country's most prominent citizen has vowed to destroy. There is a word for that. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader, just producer, frequently describes things, animals, and people as lizard-like, but has never used the word saurine. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, will refer to a gap as a lacuna, but never as a sisiera. The gist, in this space, you've heard references to miasmas and faragos, but never, never, for a confused jumble, a gallimaufry. 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 Uber Deperu Deperu, and thanks for listening.